0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest. But first, I wanted to give a quick update. At the time of recording this episode, we are rolling into the holiday season, literally. Uh, We've had runners having finished races in Berlin, London, Twin Cities, Chicago, New York City, and other events across the country. We also have had gyms, and group fitness teams hosting our push-pull events, and all sorts of other fundraisers. And I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who is helping to spread awareness, raise funds, and help us fight for a world without pancreatic cancer. If you'd like to see how to get involved, visit projectpurple.org and follow Project Purple on all social media channels. We are heavily recruiting our 2023 race schedule, which is out on our website. So if you're interested in running for us next year at one of the many world majors that we are official charity partners for, please check out our website. And happy holidays from all of us here at Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us all the way from Washington, D.C. area, Kurt Nemis, pancreatic cancer survivor. Thank you for joining us here on the Project Purple podcast, Kurt.
1: Thank you, Dina, for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity.
0: I say all the way because I guess if you're not in the 203 or 860 area codes, and there's one more here in Connecticut, that's pretty bad that I can, I think it's like 845 no, that's New York. There's another area code that was added not too long ago here in Connecticut. Uh, I always say it's all the way because uh, you know, we, you know, anything outside of the, the 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 Connecticut area to me is is a far distance. But DC, you're far enough, but you're close enough. Let's say I guess I could take the Acela and be there in a couple hours, or I could yeah. drive down. So thank you for joining us here. I know before we hit record, we were catching up a little bit, and at the time of we recording this we we've got winter here in new england and we had some snow yesterday and the temperature's dropped i think this morning when i woke up it was like with the wind chill like 10 or 15 which is great for my heating bills uh yeah. but but it is december it's the middle of december so it, it, you know if it was 70 degrees then i think we'd all be worried so this is kind of a normal winter for us but i know you're you're experiencing some of that cold weather too in dc so um What's- Thanks for joining us. As I said uh, before, we hit record. Our first segment of our podcast is always our guest opportunity to kind of share their journey with our audience to get to know them. And um, I mentioned you're a pancreatic cancer survivor, but this is really your opportunity to share with our audience your journey with pancreatic cancer. And as I said before, um, you know, it's really the guest to go as far back as they want or stay high level as they want. And with that, the microphone is yours, Kurt.
1: Uh, thank you, Dino. I really, I really appreciate this opportunity, and I also want to, uh, you know, give my uh, sympathy to you for the loss of your father. It was a horrible thing, obviously, and and some of the lessons you learned there, I I learned along the way um, about what what what's not known and how that can really affect the outcomes of you know, um, a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. So I was sixty three. Uh, when I was diagnosed, I had just re I had retired the year before, and I was looking forward to a great life of, you know, travel, spending time with my daughters and my wife, and I was having stomach trouble. In fact, I had stomach trouble all my life. And, uh, I've been going to the doctor, uh, about a year before the cancer diagnosis. And I, and, uh, he treated me for what he thought was acid reflux. And I was also having some back pain too. And, um, Uh, you know, he gave me these, you know, some anti-antacid kind of things or, and uh, it it didn't work. And also I had some blood tests that showed kind of weird sugar and, and um, pancreas uh, uh, enzymes uh, levels. And he said, oh, well, you know, you're, you're physically active. You'll probably work that out. Um, And, and after about a year of this, like, you know, I wasn't getting any better. So I said to him, what's next? And he said, well, we could send you for an endoscopy. So I went for an endoscopy and that came back completely normal and he said, "Well, I'll give it a month, keep taking the pills." So I came back in a month, and said, <laughs> "What's next?" And so he gave me a CT scan and that's when they found a, a mass in my in the tail of my pancreas um which they call a distal uh and uh, fortunately because I had, you know, been bugging him so long they caught it kind of early. So um I think it was about a three to four, uh, centimeter, uh, tumor. Um, so uh, immediately, uh, they scheduled another, um, endoscopy with a biopsy, which came back, they said it was a hard tumor and uh, that it was malignant. So then they scheduled immediate, uh, immediately. And this was at a hospital close to my house. It's a university hospital. I don't want to disparage it or anything like that, but, uh, um, you know, they really just put me on the wagon and they had me um, uh, speak to a surgeon who was um, a, a GI surgeon, not necessarily a pancreatic cancer surgeon. And, you know, when you get the diagnosis for a pancreatic cancer, it's pretty dire, as you know, it's like there's a at the time there was a seven percent uh, survival rate, five year survival rate. Uh, and now I think it's gone up to 10% because of, you know, or more people are getting diagnosed earlier in the wake of Alex Trebek and those kinds of things. Um, but her, her, uh, approach was, yeah, you know, we're going to cut it out. Uh, fortunately you're operable. We can cut it or resectable. Operable means they can cure you. Resectable means they just take it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, then they talked to the, to the, um, Oncology, the oncologist, and yeah, and then we have to monitor you for five years every three months. Uh, you know, because when it comes back, kind of like just when it comes back kind of mentality. And, um, you know, I was a little bit uh, weirded out by that. And um, and then I went, go get your test. So this hospital was part of the university. It was very old. They were renovating. I was going down corridors, blood tests, more scans. Uh, I had to see an infectious disease doctor because you know they take out your spleen uh, which is part of your immune system and so you have to get all these you know injections and things like that and then um, I started doing a little bit research and you know I got the um, the message that hey you know I live just about an hour from Baltimore which is where Hopkins is which is like the premier one of the premier centers in the country so I said I'm I think i'll get a second opinion so i went up there and the surgeon there had you know a completely different approach he said well you're you know i've been very healthy all my life exercise you know swimming yoga biking cardio um and um he said you're you know you, you're in you're good health they caught it early you're in one of the groups that you know there's probably a chance of a cure." And my goal is to cure you, which was a completely <laughs> wonderful approach. So obviously, I decided to go there. Um, so um, I had the, had the surgery, and then I had some complications uh, with the you know drainage and the plumbing and all that stuff. And so after six weeks, I started on the chemo. Um, and then um, that was six months. And uh, during that time, uh, I applied a whole bunch of different techniques that I had learned over the course of my life to try to cope with it, because obviously it's it's really, really stressful. And uh, the thing that helped me during that time period, uh, you know, my mom was a, was a fitness instructor when I was a kid growing up, and she was really into diet and supplements. Um, and also the, the physical part of it, was, you know, I really made sure that I exercised like crazy. Um, and then I had lived overseas and overseas in, in Europe, they have a different approach to homeopathy and herbs and supplements. Um, and uh, I had a friend who lives in London and his wife had uh, cancer. And he called me up and, and, and said, "I we found a chemist in England and a chemist is equivalent to our pharmacist here, but this chemist was like a leading researcher in um, alternative uh, supplements and vitamins and he compounds his own things. Uh, that are being used to treat uh, and prevent cancer and boost the immune system. Um, so I reached out to him and I had an interview with him and he gave me a whole protocol in you know, a diet and supplements and vitamins. Um, and then um, one of the things I learned over the, my lifetime uh, was uh, Tai Chi. I started practicing Tai Chi in 1996 and um, my Tai Chi master well, I had lunch with him uh, a couple of weeks after I was diagnosed and he was diagnosed right after he retired. After after he retired, he said, OK, you teach the class. So I, I started teaching Tai Chi back in 2001. And um, after he retired, he told me that uh, he was diagnosed with um, lymphoma and the doctors gave him six months to live. And I was talking to him, um, you know, 18 years later. And I said, so what did you do? And he said, well, I got up every morning and I did Tai Chi for two hours. And after, after that, you know, uh, I was able to go down. So now I just take one pill a day of my chemo. And, you know, he's still alive and, and still kicking it. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm going to up my Tai Chi game. And I got up every morning and I did Tai Chi in the park. Um, what else? Oh, oh, the other thing that was interesting, um, I have a friend who lives in Paris and his wife had colon cancer. Uh, but a year before I did, and she's a therapist when I, I called her up and in Europe, um, and this is something that came up in your podcast recently with Dr. Uh, Paella, uh, yep. Salvatore, you know, Salvatore. Yeah, he was great. I really loved that podcast. Um, There's there just such a disjointedness and uh, a, a siloized and narrow approach to cancer treatment, uh, pancreatic cancer treatment in the States. Um, and. She lives in Paris and <clears throat> after she was diagnosed, they sent her to her her oncologist and her oncologist was also an acupuncturist and he said, before you get your chemo, um, I'm going to give you uh, a round of of acupuncture which will bu- boost your immune system and then that'll help uh, you know mitigate the the side effects that you're going to have from the chemo so I'd been going to acupuncturist for a while. So I did the same thing. I worked out that routine with her. So I would go in two days before my chemo. And then I'd go about a week after my chemo to boost it for the next chemo uh, session because I was got my chemo every two weeks. Um, and then so m- my strategy was kind of combine Western and Eastern, and also uh, you know, Western non-US therapies that have been researched and practiced. Um, and then also, you know, I really try to take care of my brain and my mental state. And, um, part of that had to do with, um, uh, three years before uh, I was diagnosed, my oldest brother, uh, had, um, liver cancer, started with the prostate, moved to his liver and kidneys. And, uh, uh, his last year was just really, really miserable. And he was in a lot of psychic pain as well. And I, uh, uh, he didn't want to have a funeral. And um, I had been studying Buddhism and Taoism through my Tai Chi, and reading the works of this uh, Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh, who died earlier this year. And um, in Buddhism, there's this whole idea of you know a- attachment, a non-attachment, and and you know not being trying to re- remain calm and you know keep this sense of equanimity and poise. And that's something you also learn to practice through Tai Chi and and manage your emotions. And uh, when he died, uh, he didn't want to have a funeral, so I didn't have a way to, you know, grieve for him. And and before that, about a year before that, I had seen a film by a woman named Laurie Anderson, who's a performance artist. She was married to Lou Reed of the Velvet Underground, and she wrote a she did a film called Heart of a Dog, which was about. Uh, Her husband's dying and her dog dying at the same time. And they were both Buddhists and they both practiced Tai Chi. And uh, they had a friend who was dying. And uh, when he died, their community went to his bedside and they read out loud to him from this book that's called the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is actually it's real name is like to the Benton book of living. And, uh, it's about preparing yourself through this, this mental discipline of non-attachment for, uh, you know, because everybody's going to die. And so it's a way of, you know, not letting that affect you. And if, you know, if you're going into a cancer journey, you're going to be stressed out like mad. And the, the last thing you want to be is like, you know, emotionally distraught, and they are going to be throwing all this information on, on you. So, um, the, the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I actually got up every morning. and I read it out loud to my brother after he died. And that really helped me uh, come to terms with my own mortality and 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 just kind of calm down. And, you know, as you know, that um, mental attitude is being studied about, you know, its effect on on outcomes of diseases and those kinds of things. So I really I really practice that. Um, and then the last thing I did is I when I was diagnosed, you know, I know that a lot I had a huge community of, of friends and be, because of, and also because of where I worked for 29 years, I used to teach people um, in their ethics office. And I traveled to like 44 countries and I had thousands of friends and I, I posted on I, I didn't want to have take a lot of phone calls and like explaining, uh, you know, what was going on. And in fact, I called up a friend. I learned this. I called up a friend and I said, hey. Uh, I just wanted to tell you I had pancreatic cancer. I have pancreatic cancer. And she, her first reaction was, oh, my boss's wife just died of that. <laughs> Which is, that's not what I really wanted to hear. Uh, so I decided to actually just post on Facebook what was happening and said, you know, look, at, I'm not taking any calls right now. Got to focus on my wife and my kids and all this information. Um, and and then, but when I did that, like all these people just opened up and like sent me love and prayers. And uh, that support was just so important. I mean, I felt that, you know, the way they treated me was almost as, you know, healing as the, you know, the Western therapies that I got, the, the operation and the chemo. But that just did so much for my soul and just kind of, uh, you know, positively uh, affected me in such a way that, that that's why I kind of feel like, uh, you know, now uh, people refer people to me who, who have been diagnosed. And so I always want to share and, and, and when I first started, there were pancreatic cancer groups on Facebook and I, they really kind of scared me because it's like, oh, my husband just died. Mm-hmm. And, um, but now I, I go in and like, I, you know, people are recently diagnosed and I try to say, you know, this is what's helped, helped me. And uh, you know, uh, I've developed like a one pager that I send out to people that they, they refer to me about the different things that i practiced uh, and resources, um, that are available out there. Um, but it's, it's the, the disconnect is just, just so funny. For example, I, you know, since I've been in remission for, for three years, uh, I, and also because of pancreatic cancer, you know, probably it makes you like, turns you into a super hypochondriac. So anytime you have an ache or pain, you go, Oh my God, the cancer is back. So you have to, you have to deal with that stress all the time. And, um, and I was uh, still looking at, you know, is there an influence of diet? So I called up a nutritionist and interviewed her this week. And um, she's in a, in, a, in a well-respected system. And uh, I said, you know, I've got all these supplements. Can you take a look at them? And she basically said, you know, we, we practice an evidence-based, uh, uh, you know, uh, approach. And so these things haven't been re- researched in the States. And uh, so we basically say, don't take supplements at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Great, um, but the the other thing that and this gets back to how everything is disjointed. You know, um, and uh, when I went um, for my chemo, it was at a hospital that said it had uh, a very integrative approach, and uh, they had a counselor I could go talk to. Uh, yeah, so I you know went and met with her, and and I um, uh, was talking a little bit about my fear, concerns about death, and obviously, and my kids, my family. And at the end of it, she said, here's a document that might help you. And when I got it home, it was it was a guide to filling out your living will. <laughs> you
0: know. we, we, we- Kurt, uh you, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this right? stuff up. <laughs>
1: and,
0: and this is this is where. <laughs> okay, so do we want to go down this rabbit hole of like how <laughs> how the system is so broken? Well, um, let me
1: do one more story first, though. So this is the other funny thing. So um...
0: I'm shaking my head in in belief but disbelief.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, for yeah. audience
0: listening, like this is just it's it's insane, but it's not insane. If you've been there, you know that this is this is crazy.
1: This is it. This is the reality of it. Well the, the other crazy the most the most crazy thing right now is um I I don't know if you've seen this Netflix series uh by Michael Pollan. It's about uh um how their doctors are now starting to re reconduct research that was done back in the sixties and fifties on psychedelics for uh, yeah. you know, pressing movement. I've heard of-
0: I've heard about that. And I know there's 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 work being done. I, I think I've listened to a couple podcasts, various, like from Rogan to like other, Joe Rogan to other yeah. people talking about, I know Rogan talks a lot about psychedelics um, on a variety of his shows, but I know there's a lot of research. I've even seen, I think someone here in the, in the PC space, uh, maybe it was an NIH grant or something or, okay. or someone across the lines about, you know, looking at psychedelics as
1: like a form of therapy. Well, well, not only that, you know, there is the, um, well, this is this is the funny thing. One of the series, one of the episodes in this this uh, documentary series is on psilocybin, and mm-hmm. um, the uh, they start out with it's like a little case study of a woman who is like in her seventies. She was diagnosed with cancer. She's terminal, um, but she went she they she went through a very therapeutics. Uh, clinical trial where they play nice music they have counselors there Mm -hmm. uh, and uh you know she knows she's going to die and um she was like completely blissed out and at peace and Mm -hmm. at the end of it they said um this clinical trial is in bethesda maryland which is like about five miles from where i live and I ended up it turns out through just various connections i know one of the guys who's a researcher in this study but i had no idea that this was uh taking place and they're actually using this they're studying the you know uh, you know the effects of these drugs on people like cancer patients who've Mm -hmm. been given a diagnosis because not only is it going to make you accept whatever outcome you're going to have but also because of the mind-body connection, you know, having a positive attitude can, as we talked about, can can um, you know um, affect the outcomes. But the other thing is most of the, the research is that, that that started up again, it was all outlawed back in the 70s because you know, the hippies were taking it and they didn't mm-hmm. want to go for more and there's a war on drugs. These drugs are completely, supposedly completely safe. They don't, you don't get addicted to them, they're all natural. Um, but some of the most seminal studies have been started at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore because they have a whole psychedelic research uh, arm, uh, center there. And so, you know, they talk about this integrative approach. So over here, they're giving me the best pancreatic cancer, but they're not even, you know, saying, well, oh, by the way, you might want to try to get in one of these clinical studies to help with your mental attitude towards it. And I remember asking my uh, surgeon, uh, when he would, before he get me operated, I said, you know, what about meditation and, and those kinds of things? And he said, well, yeah, you know, my wife does that.
0: <laughs> We're disconnected. There, there, there's a, there's a massive disconnect, right? Like, and so, um, Your story's so powerful here, and and, and there's so many places here, and I want to go back. But I'm just gonna say this: like, there before we go back, there is a massive, massive, massive disconnect, and 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 and, you know, we don't. I'm not we don't make recommendations, but again, as we were talking before we we hit record, I've done this for five plus years. We've had hundreds of survivors on this podcast, and I just wrote something down. And, and this is where I'll, I'll sum up the conversation here. You you mentioned exercise, faith, and support. It, it, now you didn't you mentioned those three things that are hugely important in your own way, though, right? Like, and some of it was a little bit different than I've ever heard. But then you said. We know, and and science knows this, that your positive attitude, having a positive attitude leads to better outcomes.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right? So exercise, faith, and support allow you to get to that positive attitude, right? So your method of doing that leads to that positive outcome, which we know the data is there. But then again, you go to we go, and I'm not. We're not going to pick on any center here, but oh, you can no, go to yeah. any center in the United States, and you're going to get that same response from a doctor saying, "Hey, what about meditation or what about diet? Uh, well, diet, let, meet with the nutritionist. Emotional, we'll bring in the psychologist. Um, oh, exercise. Oh, my wife does yoga, you know, or my wife does weights, like you know. I don't know, you know, like it, it, and i will going off on a rant here." it's not the doctor's fault. This is the system, right? This is the system in the United States. We talk about this often on the podcast. Anyone listening, you have to be your biggest advocate because no one is going to give you anything. They're not going to tell you anything. And this is what I hope. And Kurt, this is why this is so powerful. And you just nailed it. That you know, sharing what you did and you're able to do that. Now we're going to get into I'm gonna ask you the questions on why you did that or where that came from potentially to share you know with our audience make it a little bit easier but you nailed it I mean this is right out I mean again I've done hundreds of interviews uh over a hundred I, I I'm gonna I speak loosely here with survivors and that is like exercise faith and support are so important but that's what leads to that mental and that positivity so I wanted to get that point out. Now let's go back. I want to go back here to when you, so now you, this is so it's textbook but it's not textbook because you said so you retired at 62 got diagnosed at 63 but a year before that you were having some issues. If we look back and hindsight's always 2020 20, I know when you're traveling, like we were talking before, I traveled a ton, right? That it, and you know, you're not eating right, you're not sleeping right. Uh, you know, if you're doing it for business, maybe you're entertaining. So, you know, there, there's never any consistency in routine. There's a consistency in a travel routine, which is different than being home, sleeping in your bed, having the dog wake you up in the morning, or your kids, or whatever that may be, or having breakfast with your wife, coffee with your wife. But the year before. You started to notice these things. But if we look back healthy, no issues, again, hindsight being 2020, you know, it's easy, it's easy to be like that co-pilot today to look back and go, Oh, like five years ago, I had this GI issue that just didn't go away for a month and then it went away and I never thought of it. Was there anything prior that you could look back and say, "Mm, maybe that was something that I just didn't catch, or you know, maybe uh, the doctors just didn't catch?
1: Well, yeah, I mean I mean, if you go way back, I had an ulcer in 1980, and um, they're finding out, you know, for a lot of time, in the past, they thought ulcers were caused by stress and anxiety, and they gave you this yeah. drug called tegament, which now they've shown has, you know, can cause pancreatic cancer. Uh, and now, then they said, well, no, now we found out that it's a bacteria called H. pylori, and they've yeah. said Oh, now we found out that that can cause pancreatic cancer. Um, so, you know, who knows? I, I was treated for those with those drugs, and then also antibiotics. Um, and that didn't that didn't do you know that didn't cure it. Um, I always had this stomach problem. Recently, I found out that a niece had has really bad celiac disease, and mm. my brother got tested for it. And I'm not sure, but I. I don't know if there's a connection between celiac and pancreatic cancer. Uh, so I've I'm- never
0: seen any literature on that or any data. I mean, the the one thing, you know, there 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 are connections to other cancers and pancreatic cancer, which is going to kind of be my next question here. I know you said your brother, it started I think as one cancer and then eventually got to another cancer. So, you know, I know genetic testing has been all the rage in the last five years. I don't know, you know, given your, where you were in your diagnosis, you kind of like were right before genetic testing was required, but knowing that you went to a high volume center, maybe they did do genetic testing at the time. They did
1: the genetic testing and they, they didn't find anything as well. Okay. So
0: So that's been ruled out.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's the other funny thing, you know, uh, uh, as I said, I, I was a swimmer, uh, growing up. So I've always had this athletic, you know, uh, drive and I, as I said, I exercise obsessively and I do tai chi and meditate and yoga and all these things. And so one of the questions is like, how can somebody like you get cancer? <laughs> like I did something, you know. And you know, it could be just luck of the draw. It could have been, you know. And, and it takes. They say it, it. Supposedly pancreatic cancer is pretty slow growing. Um, and it could take five to ten years, the surgeon said. So, you know, I can't think ten years ago. I don't know what I was doing. Yeah, I, I, do it. I've of-
0: heard. I, I've heard various theories on that, though, right? Like we we've seen plenty of data that, to your point, it's this slow growing cancer, right? It could be five years, ten years before it actually shows, and then I've seen evidence where no, that's not the case, like. People have done, you know, people in surveillance, they, they go in for their yearly, um, high screening, high profile screening, and there's nothing there. And then within a year there's, you know, uh, a lesion, which quickly becomes a tumor. So I, I think like, I think knowledge is power, right? I, I think to your point though, going back to, you know, doing all these things, you know, as you said, you were an athlete, you ate, you exercised, you were doing all those things. Which brings me to another point here is, and this is sometimes the frustration from a patient perspective is, you know your body best, right? You know when something is off and to your point, like, hey, you had this weird back pain, you had some acid reflux, your numbers weren't right, you knew something was up and then now you've gotta be your biggest advocate, right? Which is kind of like, you know, I think we live in the, you've traveled extensively You probably, you know, I don't, maybe you have a difference of opinion. I think we live in a, in a, in in one of the world's best countries when it comes to certain things, other things, not so much. Right. Um, you know, let's take the, the American, you know, American number one, USA number one hat off, because that's not the case, um, in every aspect of life. But I think for the, for the bigger part, yeah, I, I think we do have a a great country. We have a really good medical system. Is it probably the best? Mm. I don't know. Um, but you, again, you have to be your biggest advocate. And I know sometimes that's hard. I think here in the United States, and I think that's deeply rooted in, and I'm not saying anything against doctors, um, you know, they, they go to school. There's some brilliant, brilliant people in medicine. Right. But that doesn't always equate to them understanding how a patient feels, um, or having the experience to recognize, Hey, like a weird sugar level and back pain, okay, that could lead to something to go with the pancreas, right? Not everyone, and not every clinician's gonna get that. And I've heard stories over the years of, you know, people going to the ER and their levels are weird. And then the guy just like put two and two together and figured something was going on with the pancreas. And then they bring them in for an imaging and boom, they find a, a small, very small tumor, right? They catch it early. So I, 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 but that doesn't happen in every setting, right? That doesn't happen with every medical facility. So it's, it's somewhat frustrating. And that's where I think we come back to where you as the patient have to be your biggest advocate, because no one's going to advocate more for you than yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of sums up, you know, I, I just had to keep going, well, what's next? Okay. That didn't work. What's next? Because I don't think my, my general practitioner would have like pushed and would even would have ordered if I had just came, come on, like this isn't getting any better you know um so yeah, the other the weird thing was just dealing with the medical records I don't know if uh you know I, I lived in different parts of the country lived overseas my medical records were all over and so there was like to get my to get what I needed to Hopkins uh at the time they only accepted facts they wouldn't accept electronic things so I had to you know, there, I had stuff. I had stuff that was electronic. I had to print it out and then fax it. I had like two or three hundred pages of documents. And, and, you know, that took like <laughs> about a week to get. And it's like not the thing you want to be doing when you're trying to figure out cope with this, you know. And again, going back to my friend in Paris, you know, she her doctor who diagnosed her, you know, just sent the records over to the actually her oncologist just called up the records on the V1 same system that everybody uses in the country to get the medical records and even now you know if i go if i have something and i go to another you know i have to make sure that they're in the same system that i'm in so that i have medical records but if i get an image somewhere i have to go get a disc carry it over to somebody Mm -hmm. else you know and it's just insane that that there's no coordination between it i don't know why it's that way um uh, we know why it's that way. It's you know, probably because of financially,
0: right? I, I, I'm not going to hold back here. I think it's a financial <laughs> issue, right? Like you would think in this day and age. It's, it, it's interesting. So let's talk about this because I just recently had uh, some testing done with one system, and I've been with another system, and. Everything now here in Connecticut at least is done electronically now. So I can go in like they call it my chart, right? Like it's on this my chart system. Yeah, and right, right. Depending if the same system uses that system will determine whether your all your files are on there. So you would think in this day and age, all right, here we are 2022. You know, we have all these technology advances, right? They're talking about, you know, from robots that can, you know. Christ, San Francisco, I think, just approved like police robots. Like this is becoming like fiction now or, or, you know, like the movies, you know, with like RoboCop. And, you know, they're talking about chips or, you know, New York, you have these Amazon stores where there's no attendant. But, you know, they, they can tell via the cameras. You know, there's all these great advances with technology, but we can't have a main database for someone's health electronically even though all the files are stored electronically from xyz provider to xyz institution like it's just crazy to me right so through this journey did you and I'd love to talk about this and maybe give some tips to people because I know this is a common thing not so much from international to nas- to here in the US but I know people do go to various systems sometimes whether they start at a community hospital, then go to another hospital, or now they opt for clinical trial, which is at a major, you know, cancer center. What, what system do you use? I know you talked about faxing and printing, but do you have a, like a binder or do you have a book that you keep?
1: Uh, well, yeah, for, I've got, you know, reams and reams of that I've collected over the years. Uh, now everything I'm I'm part of the Johns Hopkins system now. So they use my chart, my chart. Yep. But, um, I have to be very careful if I get referred out for a specialist, even from somebody in my system, they might refer me out to a different system. Like Med, I think MedStar has a different system.
0: Yep.
1: George Washington University uses. So I have to be careful. And if, if, and say, so is a person in this system, uh, so that the records are all in one place? Cause otherwise I end up like having to ride my bike over and pick up discs and, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I hear your, your, what you're saying, Kurt, because I know we've had patients, um, and, and, you know, not to complex, not to throw a, um, a monkey wrench here or make things more complex. I think most systems allow guests now in, but during COVID it was just the patient. Right. And we had a guest that was on that talked about, um, you know, he was going through chemotherapy and he was, you know, he'd have some complications. He'd go to the ER. So naturally he wanted those records put into his system, you know, where he was getting on, um, you know, his chemotherapy. So those doctors would know, but it was two different systems. Right. So his wife created this binder and basically they would print out everything after every visit. And then because the wife could not go into, uh, the appointments, the husband would walk in with the binder and just say, here you go. Like, and oh, by the way, I was in the ER over the weekend because I was dehydrated and this is what happened. And these are the vitals. Here's all the tests. So it's, it's frustrating, right? Like this is the system. Again, we live in a great country. Um, but you know, I think that the system needs to improve a bit, um, across a lot of ways. Um, I got a question for you here that came up as I was taking notes here. You mentioned you traveled extensively for work. Um, You've lived in various parts of the country, various parts of the world. I'm sure that wasn't easy uh, to raise a family and constantly on the move. Um, and as I said, you know, I I I've traveled pretty extensively throughout the country and, and and also overseas. And people always go, "Oh, that's so great! You get to see places." But when you know, and maybe you understand this, like when you work, it's not like you know yeah. if if you like i was just in italy for work and people were like oh did you get to go see the colosseum did you get to go see this i go no like i flew in i took a red eye i woke up i <laughs> went to work i had to go to a, 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 my appointments and then i came home like i wasn't like on vacation um and yeah there's some downtime for me even traveling here domestically Like my downtime is I go out and run in the morning and that's when I get to see a lot of these cities that I've traveled to is, you know, at five o'clock in the morning when I'm running around and I get to see the sights, you know, early morning because I get to do that uh, because I make the time to work out and exercise. So with all that traveling that you've done, and this is a loaded question, do you think that helped you? in this journey because of the experiences you had personally and professionally prior to understanding how different healthcare systems work, having these relationships with people in different countries, and also from a broader perspective, you know, you mentioned Tai Chi and you mentioned, you know, opening up a bit to, you know, other types of medicine and not just here. you know, what we do here is the Western medicine of of the United States and, and what, you know, you got to do chemotherapy, you got to do surgery and that's all the options you have, but kind of giving you that kind of open view of, Hey, maybe there's some other things that can potentially help me in my journey here.
1: No, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, my, my strategy was to use the Western approach, but then look at what other Anything else that was out there that either was, uh, you know, not part of the standard allopathic approach um, or came from Eastern medicine as well. And then also the supplements and things, because, as I said, you know, for example, <clears throat> I, this friend in Paris, years ago, she had uh, eczema. And her doctor wrote her a prescription at the homeopathic home- homeopathic homeop- uh, therapy. Uh, mm-hmm pharmacy to go get a prescription of rose petal and lavender bud tea because and she drank that and it cured up her eczema now if you think about it what the hell does that have to do with anything but if you look at all the beauty products that are out there uh they all have rose oil in it and lavender oil so uh those those things they're being researched, they're being used, to, they're, they're therapeutic properties. But here, if you said, you know, you went to a dermatologist and said, they would never tell you to drink rose petal or uh, lavender tea. So just knowing that those things are out there. And then if you if you look at all these supplements, this guy gave me from England, you know, if you look them up, they're being actively researched, even on NIH, there are studies on them most of the authors and some of these, like on the mushrooms and those kinds of things, are being done in China, and they have Chinese mm-hmm. researchers. But again, since they're not here, uh, you know, and since the, the the there is no therapy that says take this much of this drug, it will cure this particular cancer. Those clinical trials haven't done. There's no drug that they can say yes, take this, and and that's the approach. It has to be evidence-based according to our what we consider as evidence in our studies and so otherwise you know we have no opinion or you can do it or you know we can't tell you not to do it but we tell you probably shouldn't do it because we don't know about it so um just being exposed to those kinds of things i think is you know really made open my mind for it and then as i said acupuncture therapy Tai Chi and Qigong, Gong, these are all modalities about moving energy through your system. And there's a whole philosophy about that, um, you know, to cure you, that that heals you uh, and gets your your mind and your body working together. And so those were all things that I'd been exposed to by people from other countries.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, but pancreatic cancer is the same in China as it is in the United States.
1: Seems like it,
0: yeah right like I, I i and and what do i i, I mean I'm, I'm i'm trying to be insensitive my point here is i i i think i think here in the us i think doctors have realized like hey and i don't have the answer to this like a that our therapies are what they are right and maybe some have kind of opened up to the sense like, hey, we've got to think about alternatives, right? I think if they get it, you know, the client, the, the, the I say client, but the patient's best interest, yeah, try alternatives, right? Try these other things that are safe. Now, we don't have enough evidence here in the United States because the studies just haven't, done, haven't been done. But if they've done the studies in China, that's not to say that, you know, it, you, you take it it's going to harm you. There's studies been done. It has worked in other countries. That's where I, I just get frustrated as an advocate, as a patient advocate here. That you know, here in the United States, because I I go back to you know, you had said the the subject about you know the therapist, and we're going to go there here in a second. But like, I, it just seems like we're so we're so strict. Here in the states, in terms of, or are so we're not we're inflexible in understanding the patient and their needs, but also inflexible in offering alternatives that potentially could lead to more positive outcomes. And I, I don't want to give up the false hope that hey, these are cures, uh, because I I don't think there's enough evidence there. Kurt, but, but to give people a better quality of life, and even if it's for three more months, I mean, you ask anyone who's stage four, anyone who's been diagnosed and say, hey, if you take this, and I'm just going to use your example, rose petal tea, right? Because you brought up the example with the eczema, right? But, but let's say there's a rose petal tea for pancreatic cancer. I don't know. Maybe it's a mushroom tea, right? But, you know, this is going to lead to better digestive health, uh, less nausea. And oh, you know, studies in China have shown that you know it, it adds an extra two months or a month to to life expectancy for people who did it in this this data set. Why not offer that? Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm right. <laughs>
0: right. I I know you get it, but you know, this is for our audience. You know, and and I, and I guess you know like. Again, being your biggest advocate like you as a, as, a, as a patient going through this have to have to advocate for yourself um, and do some research because clearly here in the United States um, as good as our system is um, you know and I, I do think there's doctors out there that do do this, um, mm-hmm. but it's not the majority right It's probably the minority right now, but this is where hopefully this podcast we get the information out. Other advocacy groups. I know, like, you know, CBD has risen pretty quickly. Um, you know, use of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Um, if you have access to it in your state, I don't even know, like, certain states, you know, now I, I forget the amount of states that it's, it is legal. Um, you know t- for for medical use i think it's in more more states than it is for recreational but i know there's i've seen grants going out that they are looking at this as an opportunity you know to see if in fact this does has positive outcomes for patients i can speak from personal experience i know a lot of patients that use uh, a variety of of those types of medications to help them with nausea sleep and appetite so i i I just hope we see more of this uh, as we continue to tell these stories and share those stories.
1: yeah, that, that, yeah it, it, there's a great point there that is you know uh two things. One is that that um when you're in this, you're gonna feel like my life has just gone to hell. So whatever you can do and whatever you find that gives you a sense of control again uh, about your environment and 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 your therapy. I mean, Go for it, you know, because you, you want to have some control and that's just part of and that gives you hope as well. So if you go out and research and find something that somebody has said, you know, go ahead and do it. If that if, if it makes you feel better. Um, the, the other thing is. Um, like, you know, with, with the CBD. For example, I, I in the center I went to, they gave there was a nurse. She gave me a medical marijuana card and. I don't know, you know, I smoked dope in college and, you know, years ago. And I, the only thing I remember about dope was that it really heightens your sense, you know, your sense of touch and all your feelings. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the side effects of the chemo is neuropathy, which is all this horrible buzzing. Correct. And I, I didn't want to really exaggerate that. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, uh, you know, it, it was supposed to go away when the chemo was, was done and, but it hasn't. So three years later, I still have as bad, I have really bad neuropathy in my hands and feet and it's not gotten any better. And and just emotionally, that's been really a, like just one of the most horrible parts of this whole cancer journey, you know, just that the fact that I get up in the morning, I feels like I'm walking on cotton, my hands are bustling. Um And you know, nothing, you know, I went, I went for this elect- experimental electrostimulation therapy and it didn't work. Um, but well, part of it is just, you know, I have to kind of like mentally kind of just accept it. Okay, this is part of who I am now. And, and part of that is, you know, going back to the spirituality that you were talking about and the support, um, you know, and the acceptance. Well, you know, we're all going to die. Uh, this is what we're given. We could either, you know, be miserable about it uh, or we can kind of figure out how do I get my mind around this so that I can still relate to people in a wonderful way and enjoy what I have. Uh, and you know, because it's you know, you walk out the street, you know, anything could happen uh anytime. And learn it, that was the thing that I got out of the study of Buddhism, the sense of equanimity. I can be attached. I, I know I I'm gonna feel bad if something happens, but how long I feel bad and how I process that badness uh, you know, can either I can either deal with it and, and accept it, go on while it's in the past. I can't change it. Now, how do I go forward and, and live and love the people I love, you know, and not then go and dump on somebody else and spread more, you know, nastiness based on my reaction to it? Um, so that's that's kind of, you know, my friend in Paris said, I wouldn't want to go through this again, but. You know, I learned so much by going through it that it's been really valuable and it's kind of changed my outlook on life. And the other thing about doctors we were mentioning, I don't think, you know, the doctors, it's the system they're in. I know also, doc. if you think about a doctor's job and you just like, especially in pancreatic care therapy, because the death rates are so high, they're going to, you know, they can't get emotionally attached to people. And so they have to come up with their own defense mechanisms, be able to emotionally detach and give the person the care that they need that they know this will work for this particular thing but they're probably not going to have that emotional relationship that you need Uh, so you have to find it some other way you know and that's through your community or your spirituality or something like that so I don't beat up on doctors because you know I would if you think about just how horrible that was you know you know or working with cancer patient kids imagine how horrible that is you know and just think about the compassion you need to have for those people and hope that they give you compassion find that compassion from other people and other sources because you may not get it from the, the medical system
0: i i agree and disagree yeah and why do i why do i say that because i, I think every doctor should have compassion um and and i get it i get what you're saying yeah. um because they deal with it but that doesn't mean that you can't have compassion for your patients and be able to connect with them and understand where they're coming from. I, I don't know. I, I'm very big on that, Kurt. And I, I, I just, you know, my family had an interesting experience when my dad was at his finality and, and a, an oncologist who wasn't his regular oncologist because we were in a hospital, came over to my mom or came over to my dad and said, hey, where would you like to pass? And my dad got really upset. Now, I think my dad knew he was dying. I mean, he knew, but like to have that kind of conversation. And so, my parents were immigrants, as I said before we hit record. So, you can imagine a 65 year old Italian lady coming in, hearing this, you know, seeing my dad crying because he was crying. And uh, she said, "Why are you crying?" And he said, "Well, the doctor asked me where I wanted to die." And my mom stormed out of the room, and the nurses had to hold her back because she was trying to hit the doctor.
1: The and doctor. I've heard
0: I, I've heard stories about this. I just heard another story recently too, where the a doctor came in when someone was diagnosed and said the same thing, like, "Hey, you have three to six months to live. Where do you want to go?" Like, and I was like, "What?" So you know, so I I I I think I don't disagree. But I do disagree in the sense that uh you know, we we've gotta do better um, in that. And and I think something about that maybe is control in the sense for the doctor. Um, I don't know. I it's not my problem to fix right now. You know, we're we're really passionate about working. And I and I do know there's there's plenty of really, really compassionate empathetic doctors doesn't mean they're going to hug you and you know be there but you know they care um and they're they're empathetic to patients needs and and you know to understand that so i i think you know for patients listening if if a doctor comes in and says that just get the hell out of the room that would be my my answer to that and just go find someone else that cares about you that's going to fight for you um i want to talk
1: about the the who you interviewed, because he seemed to have that approach, you know. We think we look at the whole patient and uh, you know, that there's that emotional component. You really got that sense that he really uh, you know, that's They get it.
0: They understand it. That's why there's some of the best. I, I just want to bring up something. You talked about the the acceptance and death. And I want to ask you this question. There's a lot we can't control. Mm-hmm. But when we go back to that mental, do you think that's a big piece in controlling that mental is having that acceptance? And not everyone gets there at the same time. I, I've seen, but yeah. I think that's a big key in that, right? Because now you've accepted, and you can—that's tr- something you can control. You can control your emotions. You can control right. your mindset. You can control that.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, That it's really, really important. And, and about thirty years ago, um, I've kind of went from. Early, early age, I was scared of death because my dad took me to see a cousin who had died, who was about my age, and I saw this body in the in the casket. You know, it freaked me out. I was like about ten or, you know, and and but nobody ever processed that for me. And as a kid, going through that, it just scares the hell out of you. And so I was always kind of fixated and worried about it. And then about thirty years ago, somebody gave me a, uh, a lecture by a guy named Stephen Levine. Who's actually, his son actually does a, has a podcast. I think it's called Dharma punks or something like that. Um, but he was a Buddhist and he worked with Helender Kupler Ross and Ram Das and they worked on, uh, hospice services for, uh, AIDS patients back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was a Buddhist and, um, he told all these stories about people, um, who, you know, when they're given a diagnosis, uh, of cancer, if, or a death of any kind of, uh, you know, term limits on their life. Um, that, you know, it's obviously going to be really, really emotional. And how you deal that, you can deal with that in a in a healthy way or, you know, an unhealthy way. And he told all these stories about, and this one really, really touched me. There was a woman who had Alzheimer's and she came to a workshop. And... They were talking about, you know, assisted suicide and, and those kinds of things and uh, taking, you know, drugs to, to to end your own life. So you would have control over, you know, this, uh, this, this. And she said, I figured out how to do it. Uh, I'm going to take the, the pills that will terminate my life and I'm going to put it on the mantle in my fireplace. And I'm going to put a sign up there that says, when you don't remember what these pills are for, take them. And, you know, that just gives her the sense of control. Okay, I'm in control of my life, my emotions. I'm going to die with dignity. Uh, and this is how I'm going to do it because I won't, at some point, I won't be able to mentally do this. Um, so that was like a real powerful thing that realized, yeah, I have control of how I react to my own mortality. And then there was another patient who had AIDS and he had like so many days to die and he was... He knew he was terminal, so he had got the pills he was going to take. And every day he would get up and he would sit down and he had a pile of stones and he would go, "Okay, what do I have to take care of? Unfinished business today. Anybody I have to settle things with, any things I have to resolve. And then he would spend the day working through those issues and he put the, the stone on the other side when he was. And so it was very consciously and mindfully he decided this is how I'm living my last days i'm in control of it and um you know that's it's a so much you know healthier way and you go out not spreading a lot of you know bad karma i don't want to give a downer kind of thing but you know fortunately i've lived you know through the cancer i'm cancer free for three years it does have a high rate of return it may come back it may not come back uh but at some point i have to kind of deal with my own mortality and and the mental state is I, I need to have control over that. I don't want to die in fear. I want to die mindfully and also in the love and carry the love with me that I have with other people. And, um, you know, and I think just being mindful of that it, it's part of just acceptance, you know, we're all going to do it, but if you have that mentality going into it, maybe you'll have a better outcome coming up because you're going to just have a whole better, you know, Positive attitude towards towards the whole thing.
0: You know? It's fascinating, Kurt. You know, hearing both those stories, talking about people, you know, having control but being good people, right? <laughs> Leaving the world a better place. Not not you know how we should you know. It, 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 this may. Whether it sounds, you know, people say it sounds corny or it's cliche. It's like, you know, going to bed at night and having a clear conscience. Like, hey, like I, I had a disagreement with my kids, but you know, we we figured it out, right? We had that tough conversation. Or, you know, at work, uh, I didn't get along with a coworker, but you know, we came to some middle ground, right? In that sense, and so, you know, having that. But this goes back to that control and acceptance, and I, and I think partly. This could be a whole nother podcast. You know, this acceptance of death is so powerful and and realizing that, you know, I I like to say you worry about what you can control and not the things out of your control. We are all going to pass at some point but that's out of our control. No one knows that, right? And, and and there are steps that you can take, right? You can eat a healthy lifestyle, you can work out, you can be a positive person, do all these things. And we do know that some people will get cancer and they will pass away, even if you do all those things. And we don't understand that. But, you know, hopefully along that journey, you've done all these positive things and, you've led a positive lifestyle and you leave such a positivity on people and, and and family and and work and stuff like that but worrying about what we can control is so powerful so so powerful um and, and I, I I think that's uh again i I come back to here, here as the host you know people who have that acceptance I've seen, I don't have the data yet, but I, I I believe have a more positive outcome in this journey because they have acceptance and they and that's the control that they, they have in that. So I appreciate you sharing the, your thoughts on that, uh, Kurt. I've got two questions left here for you. And both of these are, I always say, these are kind of loaded. I know you've listened to the podcast, so maybe <laughs> you have an idea what's coming down the pike here. Um, given your experience, everything you've gone through... Um, I know this is going to be hard, but what advice would you give someone who just got diagnosed that maybe is listening to the podcast? What are maybe, I know it's hard to say like the one thing, but what are are some of the things that you would say to this person? Like, hey, this is what you should do, or this is what I would recommend.
1: Yeah. I think just uh, for a person's own autonomy, they should do, I'm not going to tell them what to do, and they should do what they feel is right for themselves some people want to be public about it other people don't because of the sense of privacy but um, also you know get a lot get as many inf- much information as you can um uh, get second opinion obviously go to a high volume place like you know who does who does like four or five hundred uh, pancreatic cancer surgeries but also don't discount the the uh non-traditional American evidence-based, uh, you know, but also, you know, take that with a grain of salt because there may be people that saying, you know, you know, go and get a coffee enema in Mexico or something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and then the second thing is, um, uh, ask for help. Uh, you know, I, I put out there, you know, here's what I need. Uh, I, my wife was writing a book. Uh, she was really stressed out. I was stressed out from this. Um, right now, uh, I can't take calls, but if anybody, you know, later on when things settle down, we might need meals and stuff like that. And the, the other thing is, um, some people said, oh, you should use CaringBridge. So I looked at CaringBridge. Account. Here's another password, you know, thing <laughs> that I would have to coordinate, you know, and like, if you want to tell somebody to use CaringBridge, do it for them. You know? Yeah. And ask, but ask for help. And once I asked for help, like there were times where I couldn't get a, a, um, a ride. I needed to get up to Baltimore. My wife was on deadline. And so I said on Facebook, Hey, can anybody give me a ride? And like people, yeah, I'll I'll give you a ride, you know, whatever you need. And people will rise to the occasion. It's awesome.
0: I love it. I love it. Last question here. Um, And we're going to share where our audience can connect with you um, after this question, but this is uh, always a hard one. It's a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. Given your experience, what you've went through, how do you define the term pancreatic cancer?
1: Oh, well uh, I'm not a doctor. It's a, you know, it's such a complex thing. Uh, It's a, some kind of tumor <laughs> in your pancreas that can kill you. <laughs> and, uh, it's, there's, it, the earlier that you can get diagnosed, the better. Uh, there's, um, doctors haven't been trained to recognize it, uh, and the symptoms and the, the, the common symptoms are stomach uh, problems and lower back aches. And, um, and, uh, as soon as you have those, if a doctor wants to give you a pill or you see a pill on TV that says, this is going to cure my indigestion. Don't go that way. Try to like, you know, just keep asking what's next. You know, if it doesn't resolve asking what's next and really kind of be your advocate and, and push for it because, uh, um, you know, they don't know, uh, they know what some of the things that cause it are like, you know, uh, family history, alcohol, uh, smoking, um, those kinds of things, but um, uh, the later you catch it, the, the lower your chances are. Um, so, can't, pancreatic cancer for me has now turned into like, um, you know, something I you know I wish we had more uh, <laughs> funds and a different approach to, uh, and it's very it's like this huge monster out there. Uh, but what I'm really heartened by is that people are really taking because and unfortunately because of high profile deaths. Is finally getting some of the uh, traction it needs uh, and people like you are, are, you know, getting funding for it to research it. And, and uh, um, you know, it's, it's really scary. It's scary. <laughs> so all of those things are pancreatic cancer.
0: It's so. powerful. Kurt, thank you for sharing your journey with our audience. Uh, if someone listening, you know, is going through a similar experience, maybe they want to talk to you about. Starting Tai tai Chi or you know meditation or you know some of the other things that you mentioned on the podcast. Where's the best place for our audience to connect
1: with you? Well, I have an Instagram account. Uh, It's called at k u r t p o s t post in Korea. Post in Korea. That's probably the best way to get hold of me. Um, I also have a Facebook page uh, slash Kurt Nemus. K u r t n e m e s, Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. So any of those ways you can get, get in touch with me.
0: Repeat that Instagram one more time, because I just want to make sure we got that.
1: Uh, Kurt uh, post pancreas.
0: On Instagram. Awesome. Yeah. Kurt, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast and sharing your journey with pancreatic cancer.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate it. And again, uh, you know, I hadn't heard, heard of you since before last week. And I'm really impressed. And I, you know, just listening to one or two podcasts that you put out, I've even learned new things as well. So keep up with the good work. And, and again, uh, I think you're doing God's work there.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear or what you viewed on YouTube, feel free to share this episode and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on YouTube. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Be safe and thanks for listening.